Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And just a hint on the program, politicians are pushing for more regulation in the crypto industry. I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where the economic picture across Europe looks less gloomy than expected after inflation eased up in November, but there could be more bad news on the way. I'm Doug Krisner. Did the central banks of Australia and India take cues from the Fed? I'm Amy Morris in Washington. We're watching the Senate runoff in Georgia. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Hi, everybody. I'm John Tucker, and let's start today's program with the swirl of crypto chaos. And joining me now, Bloomberg's Katie Greifel. And Katie, uh, we've had some big crypto companies go bust. The contagion and ripple effects still swirling as we speak. Uh, here's Tim Adams. He's the CEO of the Institute of International Finance. Bubbles are going to pop. And FTX is an example of business uh, plans are made on a napkin uh, that just didn't work. Uh, but I don't think it's crypto per se. I think what we saw with that particular uh, enterprise is just really bad governance and bad oversight. Well, bad governance and bad oversight, as he puts it. In the coming weeks, uh, we're going to have the House Financial Committee convene for a hybrid hearing entitled Investigating the Collapse of FTX. Part one. So, Katie, um, the horse has left the barn, and now it's time to close the barn doors? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it's a complicated regulatory puzzle here. Who actually <laughs> <telling> me. <laughs> has oversight, especially in the case of FTX? I mean, clearly there was some failing here. But just a reminder of what we're dealing with. This was a Bahamas-based exchange. What a U.S. regulatory agency should have done about that is an open question right now. Congressional hearings usually don't get my attention, but I'll be <laughs> sitting down with a big bowl of popcorn for this one. What do you expect? Is he going to show up, Sam Bankman-Fried, the the head of bankrupt Well, FTX? he's given an interview to just about everyone, it feels like. I think that the reporting has shown that they would like him to be in person, physically there, whether or not he will actually come to Maybe US he shores. shouldn't come to the U.S. because somebody's going to want to put some uh, cufflings on him? Hopefully he's talking to his lawyers. I'm not I'm not sure uh, who's advising him here. But in any case, uh, theoretically, he will be appearing in front of Congress, or at least that is the hope. But I don't know. He has. We've heard a lot from him between the New York Times interview, his tweets, uh, the reporting from other outlets as well. What did he say in that, uh, that interview with Andrew Ross, Ross Sorkin? It was pretty amazing. I mean, the big takeaway is that he said that he wasn't trying to commit fraud. So the intent wasn't Well, no, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, in the annals of fraud history that you really start off trying. Right, it's for sure. It's sort of like a well-worn path, like the 
Unless you're a cartoon villain, theoretically, most people don't start off with fraud in mind. But, I mean, he was very candid. It was a long interview, first of all. Uh, This, of course, was at the New York Times Dealbook Summit with Andrew Ross Sorkin. He said, I made a lot of mistakes. There are things I would give to be able to do it over again. Again, And again, I didn't ever try to commit fraud. There was a lot of talk about whether he knew that the customer deposits at FTX were being commingled with the trading shop, which is Alameda Research. Which when you put you know, customers' funds into different accounts, that's, yeah. that's a big no-no. Yeah, for sure. That, uh, that is typically on the naughty list. And the Wall Street Journal has reported that that's exactly what was happening, that they were basically funneling those customer funds into the, the trading shop to fuel those risky bets, and you end up with a ton of leverage, and when the market moves against you, here we are. Yeah, I don't want to get too complicated, but FTX was not just a platform, uh, but it was other stuff, too. There was a, a hedge fund, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. and they had their own token, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the exchange had a token, the FTT token, which it's hard to describe. I mean, Matt Levine uh, of Bloomberg Opinion has basically described it as kind of like equity in the exchange <laughs> itself. Uh, but, I mean, to your point, the thing about the crypto industry, the reason that it has this very uh, these strong connections, this interconnectedness, is because a lot of these companies are wearing a lot of hats that would be separate roles in the traditional finance world. It's not uncommon for a firm in the crypto industry to be a custodian, to be a brokerage, to be an exchange. Again, those are all distinct roles in the world of traditional finance, but these crypto companies, we're putting them all under one house, and then it sort of creates this really what can be an unstable situation as we've seen play out. And he complained about too much regulation? He did. So he felt like he had spent too much time trying to get licenses for FTX. Uh, He said of the regulatory process that he had spent hundreds, even thousands of hours meeting with regulators to try and get approval for FTX US, the US arm of the platform, to offer futures trading. That, of course, didn't work out maybe for the best. Okay, this I'm I'm betting this will be one of the first questions if he shows up, if he's there for any congressional hearing. Where's the money? Mm, it's a great question. Does anybody know? No, it's Does he know? <laughs> there, we're still talking about missing billions here. Uh the the people who are handling the liquidation process, of course, John J. Ray the third is at the helm of it. The new FTX CEO, he of course handled Enron's he's liquidation. He's the uh, he's the court appointed, the bankruptcy court appointed dude who's done every major bankruptcy you can think of. Yeah, he back to Enron, I think. Is exactly, where I exactly. Name. So he's been around the block a few times, and I mean, the words he hasn't minced words when it comes to FTX. He's talked about completely just so unprofessional in terms of the record keeping, basically that it didn't exist. So one of the things they're trying to do right now is figure out where all of the billions of dollars of customer deposits went. They've located some of the Bitcoin in cold wallets, for example, uh, but there's still a lot to uncover here. Katie, always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld helping us explore the world of crypto. All right, Katie, thanks a lot. And just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look at the inflation picture and what next in Europe. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. 
of later in the program. Big week coming for central banks in Australia and India. But first, November's inflation numbers from the countries using the euro will lay the groundwork for the European Central Bank's next decision December 15th. But in the coming days, a raft of other economic data will tell us more about the state of economies across Europe. And for more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. John, the predictions for this winter were dire for Europe. Warnings of blackouts, forced factory shutdowns due to the energy crisis provoked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Milder weather, though, until early November has avoided the worst scenario for many major European economies. But inflation remains close to record highs. Our chief Europe economist, Jamie Rush, joins us now um, for more. Jamie, the latest CPI figures for the Eurozone showed a slowdown to 10% from 10.6% in October better than had been expected. What was driving it? So the bulk of that has been has been better news on energy prices. So particularly in the Netherlands uh, and Spain and I think to some extent Belgium, they, these countries see very quick pass-through from wholesale gas prices into, into retail prices. So, you know, that's what we're seeing. It's taken some pressure off. Uh, it's beaten uh, consensus to the you know to the downside, uh, and you know actually the ECB just needs that. It just needs some good news on inflation. We've had a year and a half of upside surprises. This is the first time we've had a downside one in the, in that period. And do, does it give us any indication as to whether or not we could be close to a peak of inflation? But we're still talking about ten percent, even though it has come down slightly. I, I think we probably are past the peak, depending on. I mean, clearly things could things could change, right? We're not. We're only just going into winter now. We're not actually there. Yes. Uh, and so it could easily prove cold. Things could, you know, the, the, the reason that gas prices have fallen is, is, is partly because the risk premium has just gone away. That could come back. So that it's, I think it's too early to say, to, you know, to rule out another surge in inflation. But my best guess is that well, from what we know now, probably we've, we've passed the peak. And we do like your best guesses. They, they prove to be right quite a lot of the time. Um, how much divergence are we seeing among countries in the euro area? Because that's part of the picture now that's emerging as we're getting, you know, of the individual figures that we've gotten from countries. France still seems a little bit sticky, but we did get the sign of a slowdown in, in Spain and in Germany. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so we know that there are quite big differences in the energy mix in different European countries, France in particular, because it's reliance on nuclear and also that, you know, government policy has just capped prices there. So we've seen much lower inflation in France than the rest of the Eurozone, um, but it's going to last for much longer. So, that, yeah, we have very different experiences, which actually translates into different politics as well, and just, you know, the way people are, are, people are, are viewing um, the, the crisis itself. Mm. Well, this uh, figures that we've gotten for the broader Eurozone will be complemented by more data that's coming in the next few days. Of course, going to form the basis of the next rate hike decision by the European Central Bank. ECB President Christine Lagarde was speaking to the Europe- European Parliament in Brussels in the past few days. She said she'd be surprised if inflation has peaked. By reducing people's real income and pushing up costs for firms, high inflation is dampening spending and production. High uncertainty, tighter financial conditions and weakening global demand are also weighing on economic growth, which is expected to continue weakening for the remainder of this year, fourth quarter, and the beginning of next year, first quarter of 23. So that's the President Christine Lagarde talking there about the outlook for the months to come. Um, we will get final uh, third quarter GDP data for um, the Eurozone coming up in the next uh, couple of days. The, the last, you know, the, 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 the preliminary readings for the third quarter did show small growth, but 
where, where where does this go from here? What's the trajectory for for the euro area? Well, I think most people are expecting a, a, a shallowish recession over the winter and going into next year. But I think what's one thing that's interesting now is that because energy prices have fallen back, the impact from the gas crisis, the the, the direct impact, could actually end up being smaller than the ECB's response to it. Because the if you know, just if you use like a simple model and you compare what hap- what the impact of gas prices is to to the impact of higher higher interest rates, it's now looking like higher interest rates could be the dominant factor driving the slowdown in the eurozone next year. So it's um, you know the the cure has been potentially worse than the than the uh, than the illness to start with. Well, this of course is we're looking ahead towards the next meeting of the European Central Bank in in just under two weeks' time now. What is the calculation the ECB has to make here? Because it's this question of their only mandate is is inflation. So how much do they actually care about, you know, it's not the same as the Fed. So how much do they actually care about the rest of the economy and, and kind of ba- striking that balance? So I think there's two things they need to think about. One is the risk from just high headline inflation, what that does to inflation expectations. Now, on that side, on that dimension, things are looking better, right? So headline inflation, surprise downside is lower. That on balance, I think, means that the ECB doesn't need to do 75 when it meets in December. It can do 50. That's fine. On a, across another dimension, though, they're going to be looking much more closely in months to come at core inflation, underlying inflation. And that's going to be pretty sticky. So we think that they're going to keep hiking rates into 2023. Um, so it's, it's those two things they're looking at. Slightly, one, one calls for like urgent action, headline inflation. One calls for uh, something that's going to be drawn out into next year. Given that core inflation element, though, does that also tell us that we're going to be looking at rates higher for longer and that they will hold at a certain position, which, you know, in, in the history of the euro area, we haven't really seen long periods of, of higher interest rates. So I think what's going to happen is this this focus on core inflation. I think they're only going to be able to bring the cycle, the hiking cycle to a close once they see core inflation dropping. And our forecasts show that happening around the beginning of the second quarter next year. So we think that's when they'll be they'll have like the breathing space just to, to stop hiking rates. And we think they'll get to 3% on the refinancing rate. Then I think it won't be until perhaps towards the end of the year that they, they feel they can cut. And so we are going to see potentially that, that high that relatively high interest rate period for, for much of next year. And again, one of those challenges the ECB has is a very diverse group of countries that it is, you know, the monetary policy uh institution for? Are there countries within the euro area that are going to suffer more because of higher rates? There are. I mean, the ECB's own models show that when you hike interest rates, countries like Italy and Spain are hit much harder than countries like France and Germany. And actually, Italy is one of the countries which is going to be worst hit by the gas crisis. So it just doesn't need it. Um, So we are going to see differing performances across the eurozone going through 2023. When we're looking at the the broader economic picture, is it too soon to worry about next winter? Or is this where policymakers should be thinking to now about how the energy crisis might play out over the the more medium term? I mean, let's think about it. We've entered this winter missing six months of gas flows from Russia. When we go into next winter, we're going to be missing 12 months of gas flows from, from Russia. So the problem is going to be bigger. The question is, how quickly can the European economy adapt to the, the new energy reality? We've been surprised at how much LNG has come into the Eurozone. And also we got lucky with the weather. But I mean, it's not going to be an easy winter next year either. Thank you very much to Bloomberg's chief economist, Jamie Rush. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. John? All right, Stephen, thanks a lot. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. A look at inflation issues in Australia and India and possible central bank moves in those countries this coming week. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. 
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm John Tucker in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Policymakers at central banks in Australia and India will be grappling with some big questions this coming week. And for more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague Doug Krisner. John, the central banks of both countries are facing interest rate decisions as they grapple with the dominant issue across much of the globe, high inflation. And both economies are now feeling the effect of aggressive monetary tightening. We want to take a closer look now with Bloomberg's global economics and policy editor, Kathleen Hayes. Kathleen, let's begin with the Reserve Bank of Australia. The RBA will meet on Tuesday. And the question that I have for you Will they borrow from the Fed's playbook, at least what we seem to know of it, as it was implied this week from Fed Chair Jay Powell, that the size of rate hikes will be reduced going forward? Fair statement? Well, let me tell you about the Reserve Bank of Australia by starting with the Bank of Korea. The Bank of Korea last Friday, uh, it was pretty widely expected. They had they'd done two 50 basis point rate hikes, July and October, and and. Other than that, when they started back in July 2021, they had did 25 basis point hikes. And one of the big reasons they were expected to dial back to the 25 basis point hike was because the Federal Reserve has been signaling more and more strongly that they're not going to do 75 basis point rate hikes. They're going to go back to 50 in part so they can pause and see the impact of the the recent rate hikes to date. So it, that's another reason I think why you know the, the BOK has gone in that direction, that the RBA is expected to do so as well. And I think just generally the conditions in, in uh, Australia are another reason why they're expected to do that. The Reserve Bank has surprised markets three out of 10 meetings this year. That's that's quite interesting in itself. It means that their communication policy a little bit different from the Fed. Is it likely that they'll surprise us again this time? Well, certainly we can say Phil Lowe uh, isn't afraid to change his mind when he sees what's going on in the economy around him and uh, go ahead and do what he thinks needs to be done. And in fact, we know that now traders, instead of seeing the 25 basis point rate hike, that is, is by far and away the majority view, they think it could be a 50 basis point hike. And in fact, when he started uh, tightening last May, he did a quarter point hike to 0.35% when the market was pricing in 15 basis points to start unwinding the last of the pandemic rate cuts and return to the, the usual 25 basis point move. Then he followed that up with a surprise half point increase in June. Then he broke ranks with central banks around the world in October by downshifting to a quarter point. And he was talking about the sharp tightening already delivered by the RBA and that it had yet to work its way through the economy. So a smaller hike would actually leave him the, the key rate at 3%. And uh, a lot of investors are saying that will give them some time to assess the incoming data flow over the summer break. So I'm wondering whether or not he's going to get any pushback on reducing to 25 basis points, that there is a, a contingent saying, hey, it's time to remain aggressive because what we've been hearing from a number of central bankers, when you lose control of the inflation problem, it's really, really difficult as time goes on to attack it in a way that's going to be effective. 
there was an investment conference recently uh, in Australia that uh, Bloomberg News wrote about, and the, the theme here is that they're playing with fire by signaling a higher tolerance for inflation by slowing the pace of policy tightening and trying to deliver a soft landing. That's one of the things people cr criticize the Fed for. It's a little bit contradictory to want to have a soft landing and still be super aggressive or aggressive enough on inflation. Uh, another comment, it feels like they're playing with fire, but the payoff is a pretty good one if they can achieve that. Uh, and of course, this, as you just mentioned, I mean, risk that inflation expectations uh, will become unanchored because it's going to be a long time to keep inflation outside of the target band. One estimate that they'll Australia will have four, five, and six percent inflation for a few years, and that that could come back to haunt them. Now, the day after the RBA meets, so we'll have an RBI decision. And is it is it too early for them to take their foot off the pedal? Yes. <laughs> They're supposed to, uh, although they are supposed to do uh, a smaller 35 basis point hike to six and a quarter percent, uh, about, you know, well more than half, about two thirds of investors saying it, it, they can't stop fighting inflation. That's for sure. It slowed to 6.77% in October. Um, and it's been, but it's still, it's been above the upper end of the two to 6% band for all year. A uh, more modest, modest rate rise of 35 basis points would follow a series of 50 basis point hikes. And it, again, it coincides with the Federal Reserve sending a signal that they're going to shift to smaller rate increases at their policy meeting this month. Kathleen, thank you so much for that preview of the RBA and RBI meetings. Bloomberg's Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John? Thanks, Brian and Doug. And just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the hotly contested Georgia runoff race. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Senate runoff election coming up Tuesday in Georgia. And for more, let's head to the Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and Amy Morris. Amy. Thank you, John. This race is being very closely watched with incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock facing Republican Herschel Walker. Joining me now to talk about all of this, Bloomberg Washington correspondent Joe Matthew, host of Sound On with Joe Matthew. He'll be in Georgia covering this mm -hmm. key race. Um, uh, Joe Warnock has been trying to pitch a pretty big Democratic tent down there. This race really is not about party, but it is about who has the character and the competence to represent these students and to represent all the people of Georgia. And meanwhile, Herschel Walker has a different style. We need to tell him he's fired. Get out of that office. And then, well, well, no, no, no. What we need to do is tell him, don't let that door hit you in the bright side as you leave the people's office. And let's start by talking about what the polls are showing. Uh, Joe, let's look at the, 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 the two candidates could not be more different. Yep. And That's some true. of the latest polls that we've seen this past week uh, show that there's uh, the, the margin is getting smaller. Yeah, there hasn't really been a lot of research. It's interesting. You know, you ask about polls. We don't have a lot to pick from here. There was one from AARP uh, over a week ago. Really? That found, uh, that found Raphael Warnock actually ahead by four or five points, but that was within the margin. And when you look deeper inside... He's Warnock is leading by by double digits among young voters, 18 to 49. He's got a 24 percentage point lead over Herschel Walker. That is significant. The more 
old, the older voters are, the more they tend to lean towards Herschel Walker. Uh, independents are also breaking by just about inside the margin. Again, four or five points breaking uh, for uh, Senator Warnock once again. We got another one uh, just a couple of days ago. And, you know, th- these aren't often the, the normal uh, polling agencies we hear from. This is Frederick Polls, Compete Digital and Am Political. They have both candidates deadlocked, an actual toss up at 50 percent each. Now, let's look at some of these numbers um, and let's try to break it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and let me give you a, a bit of a, a story here, just a, some anecdotal. Georgia's Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan told CNN that he cast his ballot. You know, he yeah. voted early. Right. He didn't vote for Walker. He didn't vote for Warnock. I find this so hard to believe. Called this the most disappointing ballot. He, oh, you don't buy it. So you got out of bed that morning, waited in line for an hour without knowing who you're voting for as the Lieutenant Governor? Maybe Meanwhile, he had a write-in. Brian Kemp, his boss, is all in for Herschel Walker. He's dedicated his entire ground game. He's stumping for him, sharing a stage with him, and raising money for him. Okay, Having then... not done that in the midterm election cycle, he decided to do this for the runoff, just to thumb his nose a bit at Donald Trump is what we is how we see that. But his lieutenant governor has no idea who to vote for. Maybe you should wait a minute to go vote. Well, he, my, my point, my question about this, <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> pardon me, is the divisiveness that you see now and the division even within the GOP itself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm not sure how much division there is at this point. Following the midterms, Republicans have decided they need this. There's a reason. It's not just the, because it's fun to have one extra seat. If Raphael Warnock keeps his job, they'll be able to have a majority on committees. If Republicans get this seat, Herschel Walker wins, they keep Democrats from doing that. So there is actually a matter of business at hand here. It's not just having that extra layer of protection. It'll dictate the way these committees are made up. Republicans are all in on that, whether it's Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton, Rick Scott. They've all gone down there. Donald Trump, of course, picked this candidate. Now Brian Kemp is is working overtime to get him elected. Things have gelled pretty well for Herschel Walker inside the Republican Party. One of the things I like to watch, especially when it comes to a runoff, is how the early voting is turning out. Yeah. Is that going to make a difference here, the turnout for early voting? That's the big question we're walking into next week with, because they, they have set a record uh, for early voting here. Uh, we understand, based on history, that that tends to benefit the Democrat. So Raphael Warnock is feeling pretty good about those numbers. Only 181,000 people voted early last weekend, uh, and and as and we've seen these numbers tick up over the course of the week since. Let's talk about the money. There's been a lot of money poured into this race. Mm-hmm. Record-breaking numbers. Uh, does that make a difference? The more pers- the more you spend, the more likely you are to win? Doesn't seem to be, right? You've got these guys within a percentage point. Despite all the scandals, the abortion stories, the endless talk of vampires and werewolves, <laughs> it's been a crazy campaign, mm. and they are essentially tied. So it's hard to make the case for money. Although I will say this, if you back up a little bit to the midterm cycle before this turned into a runoff, Mitch McConnell was the one spending money on Herschel Walker, not Donald Trump. And if he hadn't done that, it might not have gone as well as it did for Herschel to begin with. He might not have actually gotten into the runoff. So so money does have its time. The question is how much Brian Kemp's money might make a difference now. Okay, so what are you watching for as you get ready to pack your bags and head down to Georgia? 
Well, you know, look, we're watching turnout. To your point, a lot of the things that we've discussed as well, and, and we've, you know, Barack Obama showing up uh, has its own factor that's difficult to quantify. He, he certainly helped Raphael Warnock during the general. Seems to me he's a celebrity who wants to be a politician. And we've seen how that goes. And then we're going to see who shows up day of. You know, if Republicans can get out in force on Tuesday, they might be able to blunt the impact of a record early vote. And we are talking with Bloomberg Washington correspondent Joe Matthew about the runoff election in Georgia. Is it lost on anyone that this is sort of a rerun of what happened a couple of years ago? Well, it's not on Raphael Warnock. That's part of his stump speech now. He has run for the same job. Something like five times in the last two years. I mean, if you think about it, hmm. the general, uh, the runoff, the general, the runoff. Oh, wow. Here he is again. And he's only uh, been in office for two years. Yeah. It, I mean, my goodness, you need to really want that job to keep going through this. But you could also argue that it gives him a bit of an advantage. It's not his first ball game, not by a long shot. Uh, you mentioned um, the former president, Barack Obama, down there campaigning for Warnock. Does mm-hmm. that help a lot? It made a huge difference in the general election for Barack Obama to go down there to help activate, to mobilize African-American voters. And that's why he came back. That that poll that I mentioned from AARP mm-hmm. finds black voters 50 and up differ in preference from their age group. Right. As I mentioned, the, the older voters tend to favor Herschel Walker. In this case, Raphael Warnock has an 83 point lead over Herschel Walker among black voters 50 and up. The margin of error is five points, so I think we can call that a win. So I want to make sure I understand. Mm-hmm. Older voters tend to lean toward Herschel Walker? Yes. Not Warnock? Correct, with the exception are of they black football voters fans? specifically. I'm sure they are. I mean, Look, that's got to— royalty in, in Georgia for football fans. I'm, There's no doubt about it. Even though he was I'm living very in Texas. Aware. Living in Texas for most of this campaign. That's been an issue most recently as he got a homestead exception— uh, for moving to Georgia, it's kind of an interesting thing here. If you go back and look at a lot of his interviews on Fox, he was sitting at his home in Texas for them. I, I think it's important to point out that this runoff is so significant and there's so much riding on it that we are actually, Bloomberg is sending you down to Georgia for the election results on Tuesday. What are you going to be watching for? Uh, well, again, we're looking at turnout and to see how Republicans can mobilize voters to come out the day of, whether they can blunt the impact of a potential Democratic advantage in record early voting. Uh, what are you going to be watching for in the coming week? Other issues that may be percolating on Capitol Hill or at the White House? Is there anything oh, gosh. that's well, got your attention? Look, we could take a couple of days to decide this race, first of all. We may oh. not know this on Tuesday night. I'd like to think by Wednesday we'll have a sense of it, but it's going to take a minute. This is really close. Remember how long it took for them to call Pennsylvania, to call Arizona, some of these other states? Georgia's like that. That's why it went to a runoff. So does it take the week? I don't know. We're, we're prepared to, to, to cover that. While the lame duck session continues here in Washington, Republicans, you know, they have this in the back of their mind here uh, and what a, what a 51st seat might mean for them. But the lame duck session needs to happen first. We need to take care of government funding, which runs out on December 16th. Uh, and then there's a lot of question about uh, about funding going forward, whether they're going to kick the can down the road for the entire year or into February. If we get a short-term CR, it increases the risk of a possible government shutdown. That's one thing we're watching. And Joe, there's been a you know power shakeup in the House. Do we Absolutely. know who the speaker's going to be? That's a great question. No, technically no. It looks like it's Kevin McCarthy. 
He's certainly been running for the job. He's cutting a lot of deals right now, but this is going to go to the floor, right? He's he's re- he's received the support of his caucus, but when it goes to the full floor, it's just like when we were there on midterm election night. You need 218 to win, and Democrats are not likely to help him out. So there's a real question about whether he comes out of this with the gavel or if a Steve Scalise, for instance, when this goes to round two, round three, maybe more comes from behind very quietly and becomes the next speaker. That's not the most likely scenario, but it's one we're hearing a lot more about now. Is there a possibility you'd have a Democratic Speaker of the House with a Republican majority? Not likely, no. But, okay. I mean, look, you've got a Republican majority, so they, would, they wouldn't they would allow that likely to happen. Uh, but it may not be who they think it's going to be. And you don't, by the way, have to be a sitting member of Congress, which is why they had floated the idea at one point, and this was likely just a rumor, what? of having a Speaker Donald J. Trump what? come in there just to have some fun. If you look at the the language, that the, the House rules make it clear that anybody could actually be Speaker if, if, if they manage to get to 18. Bloomberg Washington correspondent Joe Matthew, host of Bloomberg Sound On, which you can hear weekday afternoons at 5 Wall Street time. Thanks so much for taking the time with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks. And you can get more political news coverage by checking out Balance of Power with David West. And that's weekdays at noon Wall Street time, all right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. John. Amy Morris reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Amy, thanks a lot. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.